It's uh, Charles Gardner here at Redwood Church, and we are recording episode one of Out on a Limb. I'm here with Amelia Simmons. Hey, Charles. Hello, Amelia. <laughs> so when someone goes out on a limb, that means they're taking a risk um, over something they feel really passionate about, and that's what we're doing here today. We feel really passionate about worship, and we're taking a risk at recording our very first podcast. Amelia's so, been trying to get me to do this for like two years, and so... Finally, she just said, we're going to do it. And so we really don't know how this is going to go. But um, she came to me and she a while back and wanted, wanted us to read this book, You Are What You Love, by James K.A. Smith. And so I'd been kind of putting her off, and then she finally said, all right, we're doing this. And so she and I have now read um, the, the preface in chapters 1 through 3. We're reading it because Amelia suggested it, but she's going to tell you... Why, why did you suggest it? Well, as we begin to talk about gathering together in person for worship and really for anything, um, this book puts great language around like what is worship, what should we worship, and what shouldn't we worship. And also, we may read more books on this podcast, but just want to say like because we read a book does not mean that we 100% endorse all the content. We just believe as a group we should always be reading and learning um, and taking lessons um, from publications that serve us and disregard ideas that don't. So uh, don't think we believe everything that John Smith, or not John Smith, James Smith, is about. But um, we think he has some interesting points that are worth talking about. Yeah, we have to remember when we're reading a book that the idea about reading a book is not that we're going to, as Amelia said, we're not going to accept everything the author says, but it gives us a starting point. And we're generally going to try to find books that at least have a good starting point for us, that we don't want the starting point to be so far from away from what we believe that we can't get to where we're going. But it was clear from reading up on, on who he is and kind of where he's coming from that this would be um, kind of be a good thing to do. And so... Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to read this book together, and um, Amelia and I have already, as I said, read those first few chapters. And so I did a little research. Anytime I read a book, I want to know who this author is. And so James K. Smith is interesting. He started off in a very kind of conservative evangelical uh, background and... Um, originally thought he was called to pulpit ministry and he was almost a circuit riding preacher. And then he realized that he was gonna that he was called to, to Christian philosophy, that it was about creating think how we think about God in in ways that help inform the church. And so he became a Christian philosopher. Um, he's Canadian he was Canadian just recently, I say within the last couple of years, became an American citizen. And there's an article by a Jesuit priest that talks about that process, and it uses some of the same, the article by the priest uses some of the same language that James K. Smith uses in his book about liturgies and rituals. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that's, that's what it is. That's who he is, and that's why we're reading this book. And we will add the links to those articles in this episode's show notes, so you can go back and read it for yourself. Um, so we're in this podcast, we're just going to kind of go through the first three chapters in a very oversimplified way because uh, we would really encourage you to pick up this book and read it for yourself. So we're going to start off with chapter one, which is uh, titled, We Are Made to Love. Uh, and in this chapter, he really talks about how, especially in today's world, 
we, we live by the mantra of I think, therefore I am. But God did not create us to be thinking things. He created us to be loving things. And also you can think about it in the context of he created us in his image. And I think the image of God we most can agree on is that God is loving. So that also fits with we are made to love, not to think. Yeah, so in one of the things that he continues to say, and I can't remember if it's in chapter one, y'all going to have to forgive me. I'm going to have to get better at how, how I do this. But one of the things is he says that as human beings, we can't not love. He uses the double negative. We can't not love. We have to love. And it, it's a conscious choice about what we do love. And so the, the whole, the, 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 chat, the title of the book, You Are What You Love, and I, um, and I, think, it's, I think it's actually the, the, in my book, the, the first chapter is You Are What You Love, to worship is human. And so it talks about who we are as human beings and whether or not we're thinking things or feeling, loving things, and then how do we choose what it is that we love. And, and that, that kind of, that's kind of what he sets up is that we can't not love, so how do we make sure that we are loving the right things? And one of those things is through worship. And so, um, and, and so we have to be attentive and, and disciplined about the things that we're loving. Well, and explaining more about you are what you love and not what you think, um, a good example that he gave, or just an example in general, is I think and I, I academically know that I need to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier so I can work out if I want to be able to run a race. I academically know that. However, I just really like watching Netflix really late. And I'm sucked in and I want to binge watch Outer Banks. And I stay up too late. And then I sleep in. And then I don't meet my goals. So that's what he means is like, yeah, we can intellectually know things. But how it affects our behavior, what motivates us, is our love, not our knowledge of God. It's our love of God. And in, in, in that particular case, he says that, that part of being human is being dynamic. It's to be for something. So we have to be for something. We, we need to be for the right things. And yeah, I, I stayed up too late last night. I was trying to wind down to another episode of Downton Abbey, which Amelia knows I like to watch over and over again. Instead of binge-watching new shows, I just binge-watch the same old show because it's comfortable and it helps my mind kind of rest after a crazy day. And so, so yeah, we, 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 wanna, we want to be able to create disciplines and rituals that create good habits that lead us to love the things that God wants us to love. Essentially, what we're trying to figure out is who and what, who, who and what things does God want us to love and what disciplines, which... The primary one of the primary disciplines for us as Christians is worship, and how does worship reflect what God what what God wants us to love and who God wants us to love? Um, Amelia has here the the notes about Pascal's wager, and so so one of the things that that it said he talked he refers to um, in chapter one is Pascal's wager. For those of you who are not familiar with it, Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician. I finally found my book late last night um, on the philosophy of religion, and essentially Blaise Pascal says that life is a wager, that, and, and it's a wager that you have to make. It's not, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you're going to bet on this. You're either going to bet that God exists or that God doesn't exist. And what Pascal basically says is that 
if you wager that God does not exist and you live whatever kind of life you want to live, whatever that looks like, and you get to the life and God does exist, you've, you've made a, 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 an infinite decision um, that is, is catastrophic. Whereas if you, make the deci- if you make the wager, if you believe if you, that God is real and you live a life accordingly, according to what you believe God would have you live, and God is real, then, you've, you've, then you get this infinite reward for having made that wager. And I'm not saying it very well. I need to probably go back in and we'll hit that again later so I can do it more, um, do it more justice. But essentially, it's this wager we're making. Every day, we're deciding, does God exist? Does not God not exist? And obviously, we're a Christian church. A million and I are Christians. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. And so it's a wager that we've made that, yes, God, and it's not a very difficult wager for us, um, but that's the wager we've made, and and so then our lives become about how do we worship God in appropriate ways. Well, in in our day to day life, basically, we're always being um, challenged to enter into habits that lead us to other loves that are outside of God. Um, and moving into kind of our chapter two, all of this is around worship and what worship is, and. What Smith said is worship is a place where we learn to reform our habits and align our loves with what God wants us to love. So throughout the week, we are in all of these different systems that are teaching us and training us, whether we are aware of it or not, of doing things the world's way or the world's way and not God's way. And so uh, we're going to get into chapter 2 where he talks about rival liturgies. So real quick, a liturgy is used mostly in traditional churches, and it's usually written in your bulletin. One part is a regular font, and then one part is bolded. The pastor will read the regular, and the congregation will read the bolded part in unison. Um, I personally love liturgies. It makes me feel really connected to everybody in the room, but my husband does not love them. He thinks they're really forced and stodgy. Um... But in our world, we enter into different liturgies. And he talks about the liturgies of the mall. You know, you enter the mall, the temple of the mall, and there are people there to greet you, uh, pulling you into all of the side temples, a.k.a. the stores. The priests that are in the stores, the salespeople, are, are bringing you in, trying to get you to purchase different things. Um, the same can be said He talks about sports and the liturgy of um, sporting events. I mean, I'm a huge Georgia football fan. You know, there's the preparation, the tailgate. Then we enter the sanctuary together, a.k.a. Sanford Stadium. We We know all the right chants and cheers and songs. Those are all part of the liturgy of a football game. And if we're not aware, we can enter into these rival liturgies and not even know it. Um, An example is when I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is grab my phone. And I'm already entering into the liturgies of the influencers on my phone. Um, So when we talk about rival liturgies, it's not about don't ever pick up your phone, don't ever go to a a football game. It's about just being really aware. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to pick up one thing at the very end that I wrote down at the end of chapter 1 as we're transitioning to chapter 2, which is at the end of chapter 1... Um, the, Amelia was talking about this 
reef, re, reef, reformation, reformation, and this counterformation to these rival liturgies. So he's, as, he's, as he's introducing these rival liturgies, and he talks about how easily they creep into our lives, I wrote down, this is why worship must not be confined to one hour, one day a week, that worship must be a way of life. And so that when we enter into Monday morning and we, the alarm goes off or we wake up and we look at our phone, or we're tempted to look at our phone, that part of how we have, to, part of what a good discipline that would be, that would be um, helpful to avoid immediately entering into a rival liturgy is to wake up, have a, a quick prayer. Uh, if it's the first thing we do is we have a prayer of gratitude that we've woken up that day. It's simple as... Put your Bible on top of your phone so you can't get to your that phone. Is, so my, you my, great aunt, my great aunt had a, a superstition that has carried it through with me today that no book is ever placed on top of a Bible. My mom did the same so, thing. So you will see me, and, and among my many um, obsessive-compulsive disorders, one of them is I will never... Now, I can, I, I've, I've rationalized that you can stack Bibles on top of each other, that stacking God's Word is never a bad thing. You just can't put a, a secular book or you can't put a, a non-Bible on top of a Bible. So that's pretty funny. To put your Bible on top of the phone is a good way to block that phone out. But um, And so so when we do, and I'm, I'm not a Bulldog fan, I'm a Yellow Jacket fan, and so um, this, this, we're out on a limb in many ways today and out on a limb on the, that a Bulldog and a Yellow Jacket can do a podcast together. But I think as we think about those rival liturgies, and, and I want to expand kind of Amelia's definition of liturgy, and yes, people tend to think of liturgy as being specifically about traditional worship. And there's some things that over time we're going we're gonna to debunk and, and demystify. One is that no one really can define traditional or, or contemporary worship. It's, it's impossible because we have our ideas about what those are. But, con- but contemporary worship has a very specific liturgy. And so, for example, in most churches, if we went to Buckhead Church... We know that we're going to arrive, we're going to have an incredible experience uh, from a hospitality perspective, beginning from the time we turn off of 400 or the, the, the um, Linux connector, wherever we are, all the way in, we're going to get in, we're going to the bathroom, they're going to have either the really good mints or the lemon heads, um, we're going to walk in, there's going to be some pre-service music, the band's going to start playing, they're going to play two or three songs, um, someone's going to have a prayer, Andy's going to come out and speak, and then he's probably going to have a prayer at the end. That's a liturgy. It is a structured way of approaching the worship of God. <clears throat> Just as these, these rival liturgies, all, the, going to the grocery store can be a rival liturgy of how you make your list. You get in the car, you get your cart, and now you have to put on your mask and you wipe down your cart again if you have OCD and are a bit of a germaphobe. And then you, you determine one of the funniest experiences I had during COVID was when the grocery stores first started putting in the, the directional arrows on the, on the aisles, right? And so I had, over shopping over a couple of months of having these directional aisles, I knew which direction the aisles were. And I was in there one day, and I'm going down, and every single aisle, people were going the wrong way down the aisle. And it was frustrating me to no end. And I was just, in my mind, I'm thinking, these people are why are they going the wrong direction? I think it was silly that they had the directional arrows, but if they're going to have the arrows, let's go the right way. Until suddenly I looked down on about the fifth aisle I went down and realized they had cleaned the floors and reversed the direction of the arrows. And I was the one going the wrong direction. I was not participating um, in the liturgy as it had been defined by that particular day. 
Um, he, he goes a lot, you know, I want to come back to this idea that he talked about the malls, um, and, he, and he talks about the malls evangelism. And so in malls, you, even though the book's only five years old, it's a little dated in that even pre-pandemic malls were beginning to fade. Certainly, the pandemic took a tremendous toll on malls. A lot of stores have, have closed down. Certainly, online shopping, Amazon, all these, uh, these digital ways that we can shop. But it was very interesting if, for those of us who grew up going to malls and, and even frequently, recently went to malls, the evangelism of the mall, whether that be advertising or signs or the things that go on. And so all of these different rival liturgies have their own evangelism. Um, a lot of that come, that can be commercials that come through our television, can be emails that come from our school or wherever it is. Um, and so how do we counter that? What is the counter formation that is necessary so that Christian worship, our worship of God, is able to always supersede any of these rival liturgies? And also going back to we're just bombarded with them everywhere we go. And so that piece around worship is where he uses an example of a compass of how um, if you're just a couple of degrees off, uh, if your compass isn't true, then you're you're not going to end up where you want to go. And that's kind of also why we started with this book is because as we're beginning Redwood, beginning worship, we want to make sure that everybody's compass is dialed in. Um, and Charles had a really good analogy yes, back yes, of so, golf. Yeah, so I, I drew a diagram for Million after she and I met last night to prepare for this podcast. I went and looked it up. And being off, so I'm a huge golfer, and so I, I, there's one of the primary things you're looking at in golf is the dispersion of your shots, shot dispersion. So the tighter your shot dispersion is, the more accurate you're going to be and the better you're going to score. The driver has the greatest dispersion. It has... It's the least accurate club in the bag. It goes the furthest, but it's the least accurate. You go all the way down to wedges, which the shot dispersion is much tighter. You hit shorter distances, and so it's harder for it to get off track. But a two-degree difference in where your club head is, if your club head's perfectly square, so if you use the compass, the, the analogy, the metaphor to golf would be your club head is perfectly square when it strikes the ball on the tee. It's going to go... Ex- straight at the intended target. If that club head is, differs by two degrees, if it's off by two degrees, then where it goes can be as much as seven to ten yards away from the intended target, which could be the difference between being in the fairway, being in the bunker, being out of bounds, being in a, in a penalty area, which I call it a ha- it's called a penalty area now. It's still a hazard. So you're in the hazard. So, so that's what happens to us in our Christian lives, right? That if, if we're off by the slightest amount, it doesn't seem like much at first, but the further we get down the road, the further we get away from our intended target. And so starting with a book like this helps us to have a square club face, to make sure that our compass is headed in the right direction so that we don't get off course in the direction we're trying to head. And that leads in great to, again, going back to worship and talking about how we all want to get there together. Um, in the last chapter, or the, sorry, last, the third chapter, um, We want to focus on that God is the first and primary actor in worship, Um, that we all can think about worship in these terms. Because just like Charles's analogy around being in the bunker or Race Creek or whatever, you know, 
if I'm on the fairway, but Charles is in a hazard, then I'm in a hazard. You know, we, all of our golf balls have to be going towards the green together. So part of it is around how we plan worship, how we work as an organization has to be exceptional. If we achieve, if we don't achieve our goals um, with everyone still in great relationship, then that's really not a, that's really not excellence. That's really not success. Um, so, so yeah, that's part of. Uh, and, and, and when he talks about it, if you've if you've been um, to our website or if you were with us when we did our sermon series last fall, um, Amelia had done this really awesome Venn diagram for us that describes our um, kind of who we are as a church and and we the, our core values and those core values start with um, um, energy, um, agility. And I'm going to get this right. And stewardship, stewardship. right? Mm-hmm. So energy, agility, and stewardship. And so at the intersection of energy and agility, we talk about innovation. And, and I got kind of tripped up in this, in this chapter because um, Smith talks about the fact that worship isn't really about innovation per se. Um, but he does say it's about faithful innovation. And so when we think about worship, part of the big discussion around worship is that in recent years people have tried to pastors worship teams churches have tried to engage people in different ways is is interest and participation in worship waned what do we need to do to get people re-engaged they try to tap into those rival liturgies and kind of almost i won't say trick people but you know it's, it's kind of like i guess when you try to feed a baby or somebody vegetables and you make it look like a candy bar you know that's kind of what they do with the he talks about the coffee shop worship environments um that kind of thing so amelia so amelia texted me yesterday on the way over and said did, did one of your fancy coffee makers or do they have the ability to make iced coffee and i said you know i'm not really sure you may want to stop by the temple of starbucks and um participate in the liturgy there and identify the the the, the gift of the spirit that they might participate. Because he talks about, you know, coffee shops. Starbucks was brilliant. What Starbucks did is they understood that it, it wasn't just about selling a cup of coffee. It was about creating community. And so Starbucks became places where people gathered. One of the old jokes was, you know, if you went to Starbucks, you'd see five church planters in there. Because that's, that used to be where all the church planters went. They'd take their MacBook Pros, which we're sitting here in front of right now, and their Bible and their... Skinny jeans, I've never worn a pair of skinny jeans, nor will I ever wear a pair of skinny jeans. And that's kind of where, so there was a, there's this kind of rival temple, rival liturgy that was a secular place that was for a sacred purpose. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the the subtitle for chapter three is historic worship for a postmodern age. And so what Smith reminds us is that, that no matter how we try to package it, the core has to be rooted and grounded in scripture and the, the overarching history of the church. We don't have to be caught in the past, but we have to recognize where we've been and why we are where we are. And it um, really points us to ancient Christian practices. Right. Um, points us back to our original Christian creeds um, and things like that. And he talks about uh, the novelty of some contemporary uh, worship uh, practices and how... Honestly, the, the novelty-ness of an idea is really about the heart of it. You know, if you 
an experience may look similar, but one may be novel and one may be intentional. And it's all about the intentionality put into, like, well, you know, we're kind of making fun of, like, a coffeehouse church, but we may meet at a coffeehouse one day, and it may be for a really intentional reason. So, again, that's not about abstinence. It's about awareness of we can do these things, but let's just make sure that we know why we're doing it. And in, so, and this helps remind me that in these first three chapters, there are a couple places where I would love to talk to Smith. I'd love to ask him about two two separate issues. One is is what Amelia referenced earlier that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. The Imago Dei. As you read through these first few chapters, you're going to notice there's a lot of conversation about who we are, why we love. That he talks about the heart and the gut and this kind of guttural feeling that that the grumbling of our stomach when you're hungry and your stomach rumbles, that, that all of that's connected. And there's he goes off on a whole section about the difference you know, between um, eros and agape, the different types of love, and that, that, that the modern understanding of those has really kind of perverted the meaning of that. And so again, going back to historic understanding what those words mean, so, so I would ask him if, if his writing, particularly in this book, presupposes that we are created in the image and likeness of God because he talks a lot about sin and how we arrive at these rival liturgies that pull us away from God. The second thing I would ask if his writing presupposes is an understanding of church. You go to the homepage of our website, it says, we do not exist to go to church, we exist to be the church. And so what? So I, I, I would challenge him is that he's so clear about, you'll see that he talks about the word cardia, and he breaks that down from us from a Greek perspective. The other important word to remember is ecclesia. Then in the New Testament, in, in all the writings, the church is always referred to as the ecclesia, which is the gathered body of Christ. It never once describes a building. And so where I would push back a little bit on Smith is what Amelia just said, which is for Redwood, we may worship, we may eventually have a specific space where we worship but we may find other spaces in which to worship. We need to be intentional about that. It can't be novel. It can't be, hey, we're cool because we're going to have worship at this location. Whatever the that, belt line. Right, or, whatever that, yeah. there's an intentionality about that. We're going to worship on the belt line because we recognize that God is present in that place and that there are people who we believe might be interested in connecting with Redwood and that's our best way of connecting to them. And so it's meeting them where he talks about this, about meeting people where they are. God meets us where we are, so the church must meet others where they are. But the goal is not to allow them to stay there. The goal is to help them move along, to, to begin this journey and to continue on this journey. And that includes this concept of worship. Well, and one thing we said yesterday when we were discussing the chapters was we don't worship in a church. We worship as a church. Um, and so anywhere we are together worshiping becomes a sacred space. And into that, and Amelia said that so beautifully, and then what it does is, rather than saying worship is that one hour, one day a week, as I said earlier, our entire lives become acts of worship. Because even when we are away from each other, we are still part of a community, we're still part of the ecclesia, so that even when we engage in what we now see as secular practices, we, we can still find in those acts of worship and, and how we recognize that. Um, 
And, and Amelia brought this up. We had talked about this before, that if you've ever worked in a church, if you've been a volunteer in a church, you've seen it to a certain extent. But if you've ever worked in a church, particularly as a layperson, one of the age-old things that said is that um, you don't really want to see how the sausage is made. And for some people who have worked in churches, and when I've hired people who are lay people to come work in church, I, I've always kind of warned them, hey, this could be challenging for you. And Amelia, when I first said that several years ago when we served together on the same team, she said, yeah, but that, it should be the opposite. It should be working in a church should make you love the church even more, that what you see behind the scenes shouldn't be something that scares you or frightens you or disappoints you. What you see behind the scenes should reinforce what you already know and enhance it to think, wow, these people really believe what they say. And worship's not a performance. You know, it's not, I say, I say this up here, but then I act this way over there. Um, for sure. And that goes back to the piece around in whatever we do, we have to all do it together. We either all on the bunker or we're all on the green. Yeah. So in the metaphor extended, and I'm sorry because I don't, the, the initial listeners of this particular episode of this podcast are golf, may or may not be golfers, but, but when you play in a scramble, um, you, you play a best ball scramble, all four of you hit a tee shot and then you hit the best ball out of the four. Um, kind of what Amelia is describing is really as a church, what we do is wherever, and I don't like best or worst, but wherever the ball goes that is least desirable, we're kind of all in that together. Mm-hmm. So if I hit a drive right down the middle and someone else hits one in the bunker or the water, as a church, we go to the person who's in the water, we pull that ball out and we hit it again. And so the idea is over time to get us all where we're hitting, hitting in, the, in the fairway. And, um, and, and I love this. We're going, kind of getting, getting close here on this chapter 3, but I want to I make this one point that I talked about sin. And we, we talked yesterday, Amelia and I were talking about this, that one of the things that the modern church tends to avoid in, in mainline Protestant traditions is this conversation about sin. And in in Smith's language, sin is not loving the right things. It's when we allow the rival liturgies to take precedent in our lives, that those become the priority rather than the primary liturgy, which is the liturgy of worship of God. And so um, we, we want to learn how to avoid the rival liturgies and stay focused on the primary. Absolutely. So we're gonna kind of wrap up And I want to just pose a couple questions um, to those that will join us uh, on Sunday. Uh, What is your idea of the good life Um, in the most materialistic sense or in the most spiritual idealistic sense? I made a list of what what things that I want that I research, and uh, it was helpful. It started with really superficial and then finally got down to a little bit more meaningful. And then also I want you to think about like what are the rival liturgies that you enter into during your day. Um, from reading this book just today, I had several meetings on Mondays. I meet with um, a lot of directors to go over their communications needs um, at the church I work in in Athens. And I realized, you know, we never pray. 
I want prayer to be a part of the liturgy of when you meet with communications, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to be alive um, and vocal. In so is meetings. it bad that we didn't begin we didn't this podcast? Pray. Pray. We're going to have to posthumously pray over this podcast. So that Smith, in one of the, you're going to read one of the stories in the book. He talks about he's reading a book about not giving in to some of these things in the world. And he's about re- materialism, basically. Materi- and it, but he's reading the book at the Costco food court while he's eating. It's actually, I think, a book about eating healthy or doing something with his wife anyway. He realizes that he's reading that book while he's eating a, one of the dollar-foot-long hot dogs at the food court at Costco, and it just blows his mind. So, And that's the epitome of we are not thinking things. You know, we are what we love, and Sometimes my heart aligns with things that aren't good for me. This is totally random. That aren't good with me. Totally random, but I've, I've heard this on other podcasts and it works really well. I read yesterday that every time you eat a hot dog, it takes 36 minutes off your life. And if that's the case, I probably shouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast right now because I've had a lot of hot dogs. So um, I, if I am what I if I am what I love, then one of those things may be a, a hot dog. So anyway, dog. I interrupted Amelia. Well, that's all right. Well, we're you know we're coming to the end of this inaugural podcast thank you so much for listening um and for our friends that are here in atlanta as a part of our leadership team uh you are invited this sunday to uh charles's house uh please check your email you will have some more details in there um and thanks for listening guys y'all have a great week we'll see you sunday hopefully take care god bless